Lent. The fast of 40 days before Easter. The first mention of a period of 40 days, probably of Lent, occurs in the canons of Nicaea in A.D. 325. The custom may have originated in the prescribed fast of candidates for baptism, and the number 40 was evidently suggested by the 40 days fasts of Moses, Elijah, and especially the Lord himself. Though till a much later date, the period was reckoned differently in the different churches. In the Eastern churches, the Lenten fast was observed during seven weeks, but as Saturdays and Sundays, except Holy Saturday, were exempt, there were only actual 36 fast days. The Western church, on the other hand, fasted during six weeks, but also counted 36 days, as they normally left out the Sundays. Apparently, only in Jerusalem were the actual 40 days observed as early as the 300s by fasting on five days for eight weeks. But local customs long varied. It is generally held that the number of 40 was not reached in the Latin church until the 7th century, when the four days from Ash Wednesday to the first Sunday in Lent were added a practice that spread from Rome throughout the West and is the norm today and has been for very many centuries. During the early centuries, the observance of the fast was very strict. Only one meal a day taken towards evening was allowed and flesh, meat, and fish, and in most places also eggs and dairy were absolutely forbidden. From the 9th century onwards in the West, that practice began to be considerably relaxed as humanity struggled forth to say, we can't do this. The hour for breaking the fast was gradually anticipated to three o'clock in the afternoon. And by the 15th century, it had become the general custom even for very religious people to eat at noon. These relaxations entailed not only the anticipation of the evening office of Vespers to before midday. So Vespers moved from evening back, 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 back until you know, about 11 o'clock in the morning because you needed to keep the rule of not eating before Vespers. Isn't it funny how we manage to play around with things? but also the concession of a collation, a light informal meal in the evening was added. And this consisted originally only of drink, but from the 13th century included some light food. Fish was allowed throughout the Middle Ages, and from the 15th century, abstinence from dairy came to be more and more generally dispensed. In the Roman Catholic Church, by 1966, the obligation to fast was restricted to the first day of Lent and Good Friday. Just two days of fasting. In the Eastern Church, however, abstinence from meat, fish, eggs, and dairy is still widely practiced. In the Western Church, the penitential character of Lent is reflected in various features in the liturgy, such as the use of purple vestments, or in England, the Lenten array that we have, and the omission of the Allah uh, during Septuagesma and Lent. Uh, with the exception uh, of great feasts, uh, the Gloria is also excluded. 
In the Eastern Church in the Lent, the celebration of the Eucharist is confined to Saturdays and Sundays only. On Wednesday and Fridays, the liturgy of the pre-sanctified, meaning the body and blood of Christ from last Sunday's Mass, is used. Lent is generally observed as a time of penance by abstaining from festivities and by almsgiving and by devoting more than the usual time to religious exercises. Of recent years in the Western Church, more emphasis has been placed on these aspects than on physical fasting, which particularly sounds like the 20th and 21st century America. Well, let's think about what it really means. Let's not actually go through any motions. The observance of Lent continued in the Church of England after the Reformation, expressly prescribed in the BCP and sometimes enforced even by the secular authorities. Dispensations allowing the use of meat were issued in special cases. Falling into comparative disuse in the 18th century, it was revived by the Tractarians in the 19th and is now widely capped. Now that whole thing was from the Oxford Dictionary of the Christian Church. It's their article on Lent and Trust me, I excise some. So it's a very full article, and Lent is a full season. By the way, I'd like to get you, uh, just as a practice, uh, to open up your prayer books to the beginning of the prayer book, the part you never look at. Right after the lectionary, which you might sometimes look at, it's page uh, L-I. So that is, I believe, six, uh, 51, right? So on that page, uh, we have tables and rules. So a table of fasts, Ash Wednesday, Good Friday, which the Roman Catholic Church still keeps as a fast. But guess what? We're not the Roman Catholic Church. So unfortunately for us, there are more fastings going on. But it lists Ash Wednesday and Good Friday as particular emphatic days of fasting. Other days of fasting in which the church requires such a measure of abstinence as is more especially suited to extraordinary acts and exercises of devotion. One, the 40 days of Lent, which means Ash Wednesday through Holy Saturday minus Sundays. Two, the Ember Days of the Four Seasons being the Wednesday, Friday, and Saturday after the first Sunday in Lent, the Feast of Pentecost, September 14th and December 13th. And by the way, that's next week. So if you're in fasting, then go super fast on Wednesday, Friday, and Saturday. Three, all the Fridays in the year except Christmas Day and the Epiphany or any Friday which may intervene between those feasts. And then days of solemn supplication, which are also fast days. The three rogation days being the Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday before Holy Thursday or the Ascension of our Lord. So there you go. That's our rule. Like the Roman Catholics, we have not. We have not gone in that direction. We have not lessened the fast days. Now, you hear it about the history. So my challenge to you in seeing this tradition. Oh, by the way, did the prayer book tell you how to fast? No. So even if you're brand new at fasting, or even like me, if you're really terrible at it, Find ways to fast. And if you have questions, talk to me. This is a super discipline that the whole tradition of the church has held up for since the earliest times. The earliest days of fasting during Lent were maybe just three, four days 
or certain, you know, they, they, they were figuring it out. But the wisdom of the church landed on a 40-day fast. How you fast has to be up to you, and it should be a discussion you have with your priest. So please do talk with me. Try to keep every day as a fast day in one way or another. doesn't mean you don't need any food. There are multiple ways to fast, and this sermon is not on fasting, so I'm going to stop there. But I'm available for conversation. And I would imagine that the reading from the Oxford Dictionary of the Christian Church is probably more information on Lent that you ever really wanted to know about. We're starting a Lenten series of sermons this morning, wherein I will touch on certain aspects of Lent, hopefully in a manner that is practicable for all of us in terms of application to our lives this holy season of Lent. The first aspect I'd like to enjoin to your minds and hearts is the tradition itself. This is a tradition that has been practiced and passed on for century after century after century in the church. Yes, it has been practiced differently in the East than we've practiced it in the West and still is quite a bit different in some ways. It was particularly varied in the early centuries of the church, as I've said, as the tradition was being developed. Yet it was being developed from very early in the life of the church. So it's nothing to be afraid of. When people come to our church and they talk with other people about having visited St. Andrews, I know from discussions with some of those people, they say, well, they really ask weird questions like, well, don't they do weird things there? Don't they worship Mary there? Don't, you know, on and on and on. Um, the different traditions of the church are very strange to even some of us at times that have been here for a while, but they're very strange to the world outside. Don't worry, I'm going to encourage you to embrace the tradition. The differences in the early parts of the uh, church geographically and how they did it differently tended to be in relation to how to fill out the 40 days of fasting once that was established as the goal. And for many years in various places, 36 days was called 40, in the sense of, oh, well, you're 40-day fast. But it was only 36 days. Um, even two to three weeks was, at one time in the history of the church, deemed an adequate 40-day fast. Lenten, Great Lent. Um, in some places. In some sense, that helps us to understand that it wasn't a legalistic thing for those Christians as they were developing the Lenten fast and the traditions around it. It wasn't merely establishing a full 40 days that made the tradition of Lent helpful or worthwhile. That's not what the early Christians were about. Please note that you could very easily make it a legalistic thing. Just let me keep those 40 days and not worry about anything else. And yes, those outside the church, well, the traditional church, those other Christians too, will accuse you of legalism if you talk about the 40 days of Lent. Okay, so just be ready for that. They will say, oh, yeah, yeah, you just do, do your 40-day fast and then you're holier, right? Well, the 40-day fast usually makes sure that you know that you aren't holy is how that works, generally. Um, 40 days was the goal. At, finally, at some point, they said, okay, let's do this for 40. And in time, the, reach, the church reached that goal of a full 40-day fast. 
Yes, there are still differences between the Eastern Church and the Western Church, and yes, between the English Catholic Church and the Roman Catholic Church. We will, however, confine ourselves to the Western character of Lent for the purpose of our sermon series, in general, with reference periodically to other traditions. With the establishment of Ash Wednesday as the beginning of Lent, not counting Sundays, which being the day of resurrection or feast days, Therefore, at that point, we have 40 days of Lent. Now, continuing just to speak of the calendar itself, we also have an intensifying process or progress during Lent. So you have Lent, and then it intensifies and intensifies and intensifies. So if you've never thought of this, I hope this will be kind of an encouragement to see the structure that the fathers of the church over the centuries put into our calendar. At the fifth Sunday in Lent, we have the beginning of what we call Passion Tide. And we don't read the Passion of Jesus on that Sunday. And so you might get confused and go, well, wait a minute, how is this Passion Tide? Well, it's called Passion Tide because we're heading into the Passion. We're heading into where we're going to deal with the Passion of Christ in a big way. But we do have readings during, on Passion Sunday itself that point us to Christ's fulfillment of the old covenant promises. For instance, from the epistle on Passion Sunday. But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood. He entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. And that's a theological reality of the passion of, of Christ. The very next Sunday is Palm Sunday and the beginning of Holy Week. Yet another intensification of Lent. First it's Passion Tide, then it's Holy Week in that last week before Easter. Don't be confused that we don't read for the gospel reading on that day the passage where Jesus enters Jerusalem to acclaim and to the waving of palm fronds. That's read in Advent, actually, because Advent is all about the coming of the king. We do read that passage, however, at the blessing of the palms before the procession of Palm Sunday. But the gospel reading on that Palm Sunday is the first account, account of the passion of Christ for Holy Week. The story of the crucifixion of Jesus of Nazareth, right? We typically refer to it as the Passion according to St. Matthew on that day, because that's the Passion we read. Then for the rest of Holy Week, culminating in the Passion according to St. John on Friday, we hear the Gospel accounts of the Passion of Christ. And they are long readings, aren't they? Monday through Thursday, actually, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, um, each of the Passions for the other two Gospels are broken into two. So you read half the Passion of St. Mark and half the Passion of St. Mark on, I forget which one it is, Monday or Tuesday, and then on Wednesday, Thursday, you read half what's left, Luke? Read half the Passion account on Wednesday and half the Passion account on Thursday. So one of the liturgical ceremonial characteristics of Holy Week that doesn't happen, by the way, in the East, but in the West, is the Passion account. Long, long readings of the Passion of Christ. And trust me, if you can make it to every Mass during Holy Week, it has an impact. Just every day you keep hearing the same thing. It's like, wow, it's almost overwhelming. 
During Holy Week, we have yet another intensification of Lent. Thursday, Friday, and Saturday of Lent are called the Triduum. If a church does not have the resources to hold services each day of the Holy Week, by the way, Holy Week begins on Sunday, Palm Sunday, you'll see, in those churches, you'll see an emphasis on the Triduum, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. However, I think practically speaking, because Saturdays, Holy Saturdays service as such an elaborate and difficult service to accomplish well, quite often you'll only see a Maundy Thursday and a Good Friday service held during Holy Week. And my dear daughter Emma said to me one time when she was away for Holy Week, oh, they don't even have Holy Week services. I said, yes, they do. There's a Monday, Thursday service and a Good Friday. Am I wrong? No, but that's the only two days. Now you know, Emma, for sure, why those two days are the ones that were there. Um, I think quite often we're afraid of Holy Week as clergy because that's a lot of work. And I remember when we started it because when you were a little imsy-bitsy baby, we didn't have a service every day of the week during Holy Week. But if we can do it, and by the way, our services Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday are pretty simple. Um, if you can do it, even a said service, there's an impact there that is worthwhile. So I say that to my fellow priests all the time. It's been really good for my soul and my spirit and my leadership to have all those days. And so now I say this to lay people, if you can make every service of Holy Week, please do. And that means planning ahead, starting at the beginning of Lent, saying, okay, how do I order my calendar? And you block off every evening, like, you know, work's done, and then immediately we go to, to service, or whatever it takes. You just block it off, and you plan on being there. And so you don't plan big things during Holy Week. You don't plan to go to dinner with someone, you don't, you know, yada, yada, yada. And so that you can hold that space sacrosanct because it is good for your souls and for your growth to really be involved in Holy Week and then, of course, be involved in Easter in every way possible. <clears throat> Monday, Thursday emphasizes the Last Supper and the arrest of Jesus. Good Friday, of course, reminds us of the passion itself. And Holy Saturday is kind of a unique day of anticipation and patience and waiting. And of course, Holy Saturday liturgically, the day ends with the first Mass of Lent. Uh, but preceding the Mass is that penitential vigil service. So for, in most churches, it's just one long service. Length of time is not unusual to be three hours if you have a lot of baptisms. I think our longest service is two and a half hours and we had eight baptisms. So it takes time to do that and takes eight minutes to chant the exalted with the Paschal candle. And it takes, but if there's ever a day worth doing that, it would be Holy Saturday, right? And so all that anticipation and waiting culminates in one of the most glorious services liturgically, ceremonially, ritually that the church offers in the whole year. So I encourage you particularly 
to the Holy Saturday Liturgy. I've got to conclude my sermon because it's now one of the longest sermons of the year. So here I would like to impress upon you the work of God in your life through the church calendar. Particularly we're talking about the Lenten season and then Passion Tide, Holy Week, Triduum. God is shaping each of us through the church calendar, in this case of Lent. You are being asked by the church to make God's time the important time. And yes, we all have things to do and places to be and important business to conduct. And on top of that, if we're to be truly authentic in our current culture, then we should choose the importance of each and every day. That's the way our culture thinks about it. No, I'm going to choose what to give God in terms of my time, in terms of a day, in terms of the importance of a day. But the church has been saying to us for century upon century, no, this time over here is important. Rearrange your life to make this important. This calendar is the one you should follow. May we submit to Mother Church and learn what she has to teach us, learn what God has to teach us through the church. Let us follow Mother's direction and see what God might give us as we follow tradition and learn the lessons of Lent. Amen.